When I found out I was going to be preaching on an Old Testament passage, 2 Kings 5, I did the work I needed to do to look into that passage and discovered fairly quickly that it's only referred to once in the New Testament. And in fact, it occurs in Jesus' first sermon at his hometown synagogue. And Luke records the reaction of the crowd to Jesus' sermon on this passage this way. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through their midst and went on his way. I'm hoping today that this sermon doesn't produce whatever version of that reaction would be in you to dismiss me and throw me off a cliff. But I do know that strange things can happen even with the best of intentions. It reminded me of a time early in my ministry when I was instructed to go and visit a man who had been estranged from the church a long time and he had now been in the hospital suffering from some heart ailment. The elder said, now's a good time. Go there, introduce yourself to him and maybe it will bring about healing. So I went, walked into the room, came up to the side of the bed, and I said, hi, my name is Chris DeVos. I'm the new pastor at First Church, and I just wanted to introduce myself to you. I heard you were in the hospital. And he looked and said, get out of my room. I said, "Uh, what? And he said, get out of my room. Nurse, get this man out of here. And I backed out of the room quietly before the security came with the best of intentions, rather than bring healing, I had opened, apparently, a deep wound from long ago. Instead of closing the wound, I exposed it. Not the healing presence that I wanted to be. But I'll say more about that later after we listen to this story in 2 Kings chapter 5. Listen to me. Listen with me to this passage. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high honor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, now if only my Lord were with the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went into his Lord and said exactly what the girl from Israel had said, and the king of Aram said, go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman went and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. 
But when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give life or death that this man would send word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Look and see what kind of thing this is that he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me so he may learn that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance to Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go and wash seven times in the Jordan River, and your skin will be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out, stand, call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the water in Israel? Could I not have washed in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached him and said, Father, if the prophet had asked you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? Far more so when all he has asked you to do was wash and be clean. So Naaman went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan River. And his flesh was restored like that of a young boy, and he was clean. So Naaman returned to the man of God he came and stood before him and said, I now know that there is no other God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept this present your servant offers you. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, I will accept nothing. Naaman insisted and urged him, but Elisha refused. So he said, If not, then let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant, for I will no longer offer a burnt offering or sacrifice to any other god except the Lord. But may the Lord pardon your servant on this one count. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and leaning on my arm, I bow down in the house of Ramon. When I bow down in the house of Ramon, may the Lord pardon your servant on this one count. And Elisha said, go in peace. When Naaman was not very far off, Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, thought to himself, my master, let that Aramean Naaman get off too lightly. I'm going to run after him to get something out of him. So Gehazi went after Naaman. When Naaman saw someone coming after him, he jumped down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is everything okay? And Gehazi said, Yes, but my master sent me to you to say, 
two members of a company of prophets have just come to me from the hill country of of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of garments. Naaman said and insisted, give them two, I'll give them two talents, accept it, and the garments. So he tied up the talents in two bags along with the garments, gave them to two of his servants who carried them in front of Gehazi. And when they came to the citadel, Gehazi took them and stored them there, dismissed the servants, and they left. And Gehazi came and stood in front of the man of God. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant has gone nowhere at all. And Elisha said, Was I not with you in spirit when someone came down to meet you from his chariot? Is this a time to accept money and to accept garments, olive orchards and vineyards, oxen and sheep, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman will be on you and your descendants forever. And Naaman left his presence leprous, as white as snow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there is a lot going on in this story, a lot of action, a lot of details, but I want to focus on two big ideas that are so important for us to take with us as we leave here with our transformed lives to bear witness to Christ. Here's the first big idea I want to hold out to you. One, the world is a complicated and messed up place, but in the midst of it, there's a powerful witness. How complicated and messy is this world in 2 Kings 5? I imagine you heard some hints of it, but right at the beginning, we're introduced to someone called Naaman, whose name literally means pleasantness, but he's the commander of the enemy armies. That's a bit odd. The commander of the enemy armies having the name Pleasantness. He's inflicted a lot of violence and suffering on Israel itself. He's taken people captive, including, in this story itself, a young girl from Israel. And we're told, to our surprise, that it's the Lord that's been giving him victory over Israel, God's people. Something is mixed up in this story. The Lord is doing this. How could the God of Israel be handing victory to the enemies? And even that isn't without complication because Pleasantness, the commander of the armies of the enemy, given success, a great man, a great warrior, has leprosy a debilitating, potentially fatal, socially isolating disease. Even backing up from there, Aram, the Arameans, were really distant relatives of the Israelites themselves. One of the sons of Noah had a son called Aram. So they became a people group in the world now living in in a similar proximity who are at war with one another, Israel itself being divided into ten 
tribes in the north and two in the south. God's people splintering and then fighting against each other and manipulating and triangulating, triangulating with other people of the world who all have descended from the same family. Everything is mixed up. Everything is messy. God's people at war with one another and other enemies in the in the vicinity, and somehow the enemy king being given victory through an, the Lord's hand at work in Naaman. From beginning to end, the story has messy details. Kings are clueless in this story. The king of Aram thinks he needs to send Naaman to another king, although the servant girl has said he needs to see the prophet. Kings deal with kings, after all. They don't go below their own level in the organizational chart. Israel's king tears his clothes and doesn't seem to get what's going on. Gehazi, the servant of the Lord, is struck with leprosy. Everything is mixed up. Yet in the midst of that, God leaves a witness through the quiet voice or the bold voice of a young servant girl. It's the young servant girl, the emphasis for us on how young she is, who says, out of the midst of this chaos, if only my Lord were with a prophet in Israel, in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy, which is a remarkable statement because Elisha hasn't cured anyone of their leprosy yet. He's done other miracles, but somehow she knows this is solution around Elisha. Around Elisha will be healing a little later in the story, it's the servants of Naaman who keep him from going off the rails. Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? How much more so? When all he said was wash and be clean. Everything is mixed up. But there are powerful voices from unexpected places bearing witness to God's healing. One of the benefits of being a pastor is seeing this pattern repeated over and over again. One year, when I was pastoring in Atlanta, I was working on a sermon in my office, and I looked out the window to see an older man. I, at the time, was probably about 35, and he probably closer to my age now. He was pushing a lawnmower up the driveway of the church, which was odd in itself, but then he proceeded to move onto the grass, pull the starting rope of the lawnmower, crank it up, and begin to mow the lawn of the church, which was huge. We had a professional lawn service that did it. I was intrigued, so I went outside. I'd never seen him before. I introduced myself. Hi, I'm the pastor of the church. Just wonder what's happening. And he said to me, God, had, God just told me to come and cut the lawn at this church. So I was even more intrigued and asked him more about that, and he poured out this story of how he had been a successful businessman and had lost everything because he had committed fraud. It was his fault. He admitted all of that. He lost his job. He lost his wealth. He lost his family, his spouse, and he ended up having to move in with his mother, aging mother who lived across from the, tree, the church. And in one of the mornings in conversation, she said to him, look, you need God. You need to go back to church. What he heard in that 
somehow was, I need to go cut the lawn at the church. And so that's what he did. He came up to the church. We had more conversations. I invited him to come to the church and to meet people, and he did. And he gave his life to Christ and became a deacon in the church, wanting to help other people who had gone through similar things that he had gone through. All of that because an aging mother was bold enough to say in the midst of his chaos, you need God. In the midst of any chaos, all chaos, it seems, God is work at work. God is at work bringing about healing. And that moves to the next big idea I want to hold out to you as we move to the table and live our lives in witness to Christ. That God's action, God's miracles, God's work in the world always point beyond what's really happening in the moment to something bigger. So often there's, there's a small thing that's happening that's great in and of itself, like the curing of, of Naaman's leprosy, but it points to something bigger, which is God's irrepressible reconciliation and healing, his relentless work to bring about restoration and wholeness. It's the ideals of this, the details of this story that help us see that. I want to remind you, the Arameans were estranged members of Israel's broader historic family. They were estranged and at war at the time. And the animosity an Israelite would have felt toward an Aramean spills out in the comment of Gehazi, Elisha's servant, when he says, My master, let that Aramean Naaman off too lightly. There it is. There it is, the animosity that fuels the wars between Judah and Israel and Aram and the other nations, all at one time part of the same family, the family of God that had been called out to be a blessing to the world. These are the kinds of divisions that still plague humanity and the people of God today that spill over even into places where we have coffee pots and fellowship halls and we make comments on who the enemy really is and think about how to win the war or damage the other side. Left to our own devices, we are going to pursue division. We're going to drive a wedge because it feels so good. Recently, we've been having our grandchildren overnight at our house, but we can only take one of them at a time. As parents, we have three children, we can handle it and all that, but you know, you get a little bit older, you want to conserve your energy a bit. So we take one at a time. We had Nora, six-year-old granddaughter, overnight a couple weeks ago, and, and so we balanced that by having Dylan, her four-year-old brother, over another night. So we made that arrangement, and my wife was talking to my daughter the other day, and when Dylan found out that Nora had to stay home uh, and he got to go to Grandma's, he looked at Nora and said, what are you going to do, Nora, when I'm at Grandma's house? Sticking it to his sister, driving a wedge, loving to have something over her. 
left to our own devices. Don't we do that? Isn't that how we are? But in a mixed up and messy world, with all of that going on, God's at work relentlessly pursuing healing and reconciliation. It's what God does. And at the heart of this story is this work of God's reconciliation and healing. God who does not want to leave humanity in sin or in its brokenness or in its disease, but wants to bless people, who wants not to leave people in their sin and misery, but to bring healing. God stays with his people as they splinter and as they sputter along through history, trying to set up their regimes and kingdoms with their own kings. And eventually comes to us in the humble person of Jesus who takes upon all of that brokenness as he himself goes into the Jordan River and emerges with the spirit upon him, who goes down into death and comes up into life and pours out the spirit. Through Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself. The driving big idea of this story is God's relentless work of healing, restoration, reconciliation. And ah, for a brief moment, it breaks through as Naaman, the general of the enemy army, decides to go down into the water, immersing himself seven times in the Jordan, where God's own people have walked into the promised land and where Jesus himself was baptized. His skin is restored like that of a young boy, we read, and he's clean. He's born again. All the brokenness of family divisions in Israel and in our time, all the isolation from illnesses like leprosy or cancer or COVID are transformed in the healing power of God in Christ. All the warring divisions that drive us anxiously to the polls on Thursday and far into the night watching the blue and red maps just to see which formula is going to lead to success. All of that is healed before our eyes in the Jordan River. When we go with Jesus completely and come out brand new. As Jesus redeems our lives and makes us new. Bless the Lord, O my soul, says the psalmist, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who satisfies you as good as long, with good as long as you live so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The big idea fueling the heart of God is reconciliation, restoration, newness, and wholeness. It's a gift for us to receive. Naaman's miraculous cure points to something far beyond what happens on his skin. Emmanuel Katangale and Chris Rice say this about reconciliation. Without reference to an explicit beyond, 
we're left with the versions of reconciliation that offer little concrete help and hope that fundamental change is possible. We want to be clear, they say. When we talk about the beyond, we mean the God who is revealed in Christian scripture as creator and redeemer of the cosmos, the God of Israel who raised the crucified Jesus from the dead. A Christian vision of reconciliation needs a theological foundation. More than that, the term beyond reminds us that reconciliation is a journey beyond our own vision, beyond our human actors and our strategies and programs. God's desire and vision is beyond our desire and vision. Reconciliation isn't merely the sum total of our work. It's the peculiar gift we need to learn to receive as we live into the story of God's people. Reconciliation and healing are God's gift for us to receive. So just after, just before moving to Holland in 2003, I was called again to the same hospital that I was thrown out of, as I told you earlier in the sermon. It was during the SARS epidemic, ironically, in Ontario, a very similar virus to COVID, but more uh, severe at first. And hospitals were in a lockdown, so no one was allowed to go in except one family member. But somehow, Frank, who was in his 90s and dying in the hospital, a brusque, kind of forceful bricklayer all his life, convinced the doctors to allow me, as pastor, to come and see him. I knew him quite well. And so I put on all the protective gear, mask, booties, the coat, the hat, everything, gloves, and I came in and walked up to the side of the bed. And as soon as I stood there, Frank looked at me and said, why did they do it? I had no idea what he was talking about and asked him to explain. And then he poured out this story about 40 years ago, how an argument had happened in the church. And he was on the wrong side of that argument. And someone who was a leader in the church said to him, Frank, if you're going to do that, you don't belong with us. You can't celebrate communion. And so for 40 years, Frank still came to church with his arm crossed, sat in the back row, and never took communion. Now, I don't know what was really said and what really happened, but I know that that's not right. And so I said to Frank, Frank, I'm so sorry this happened. It's wrong. You do belong at the table. It's God's grace that welcomes you there. You professed faith in him, right? Yes, of course. God has claimed you in baptism. You've walked in faithfulness to him. You belong. Even in the midst of this division, you belong. And he began to weep, let go of all of that bitterness and hatred he'd held on to for 40 years for five minutes sobbing and convulsing his wife looking at me across the bed with her eyes wide open we prayed and i left the room it was the most dramatic pastoral experience i've ever had he died a day later and two or three days later i met with the family at the house to plan the funeral and it, usually this is just with a couple of people but i came into the house and the whole family was there several children a bunch of grandchildren and they all were stunned and talking about this great thing that happened to frank how his life had been restored 
and they couldn't believe it, and we talked about it. One of the most interesting things to me was a conversation I had had with his grandson, who, along with Frank's bitterness, had kept the church and the gospel and God at a distance. Bitterness has a way of being passed down from one generation to another. He was writing scripts for World Wrestling Federation matches. I couldn't believe the irony in that. And he came up to me and relentlessly asked me what happened. And I told him and I gave him the story because deep at the heart of all of us is a desire for healing and restoration and reconciliation. And I just want to say that that is yours. It is mine because it is God's relentless work in the world. Take this gift of reconciliation even today. Let go. Let God come into your life. Immerse yourself in what Christ has given you completely and be made new. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.